two years ago, Andy Stanley, the pastor of the third largest church in America, wrote a book in which he insisted that, quote, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. In other words, he's saying that a lot of people don't come to Christ because they can't get past some of the content they find in the Old Testament, which I totally disagree with. Um, if you have a problem with some of the material you find in the Old Testament, it's not that you really don't believe in it, it's you don't believe in a God who can work the miracles described in the Old Testament. But he said the Old Testament's right up there, not only because of some of the narratives that it contains, but also because of some of the pictures of violence it contains. And as a result of this claim, Andy Stanley said this, Christians should, quote, drop our incessant habit of reaching back into Old Testament concepts, teachings, sayings, and narratives. In sum, he said, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. But today, as we continue our study in the Gospel according to Matthew, we're going to find that we cannot unhitch our Christian faith from the Old Testament because we're going to see that the Holy Spirit led Matthew to demonstrate that Jesus is the culmination of the hopes, promises, and expectations of the Old Testament. Jesus' appearing and work make absolutely no sense without the context of the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not two disconnected pieces of literature that can stand alone. No, the scriptures are a unit. And in the middle is Jesus who bridges the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that's what we'll see today in Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Now, today's passage, I think, is a surprisingly interesting passage. It's the sort of passage we probably wouldn't spend much time thinking about in our Bible reading. Because at first, it just seems like a very simple narrative, which describes how Jesus and his family had to relocate several times when he was very young. But this passage's apparent simplicity is deceptive, because Matthew builds this passage around three quotations which he attributes to the Old Testament. And when we dig into those quotations and think about how they relate to Jesus, we find a theological goldmine that's going to teach us about the unity of the scriptures and about the humility and the glory of Christ. So I think this is an exciting passage. It's a rich passage. And I think we're also going to see that it's a timely passage. So what we're going to do today is we're going to go through Matthew 2, 13 to 23 twice. You're basically going to get two mini sermons. First, we're going to go through this passage and just focus on the narrative. We're going to ignore the Old Testament references. And by doing this, we're going to learn what Matthew wants to teach us about the life of Jesus. And we're going to learn some lessons about how God's people sometimes wind up in danger in this world and why that is and how we should respond to the threat of danger. Then we're going to go back through the passage focusing only on the Old Testament quotations that we find in it. And as we explore those quotations, we're going to learn about who Jesus is. So let's jump in in our first trek through this text in which we're just going to focus on the narrative. And in this first pass-through of the passage, we're going to see three points. First, we're going to see that a right response to imminent danger is obedient prudence. Second, we're going to see that God's enemies often seek to thwart God's plans and promises by killing God's people. And third, we're going to see that God thwarts the wicked schemes of his enemies and turns their evil around to serve his good purposes. So let's start with our first point, which is that a right response to imminent danger is obedient prudence. In our last sermon on Matthew, we saw that Jesus' birth generated a number of responses. Jerusalem and the religious leaders, they really didn't care that the Messiah had been born. 
when the wicked imposter King Herod heard of the birth of the Messiah, he immediately wanted to kill him. Only a very unlikely group of people, a group of Gentile astrologers called the Magi, responded appropriately to Jesus' birth. The Magi sought out the infant king of Israel, desiring to pay homage to him and to present gifts to him. And you'll remember they went first to Jerusalem, to the capital, which is where they would have expected a royal birth to take place. But they did not find Christ there. Instead, they found Herod, who had just learned from the religious leaders of Jerusalem that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod saw an opportunity. He believed that he could manipulate the Magi into giving him specific information about the location of the newborn king so that he could set up a targeted assassination of the Christ child. And the Magi were taken in by Herod. They thought Herod wanted what they wanted, to go bow before the new king. And so they said, yes, Herod, we will share our information with you. And the Magi left for Bethlehem. And God supernaturally directed the Magi to Jesus' exact location by giving them a sign, something that seemed like a star, which moved ahead of them and then stopped right over Jesus' location. And the Magi found Jesus, and they bowed before him, and they presented their gifts to him. And we left off last time with this, chapter 2, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God intervened to ensure that the Magi did not return to Jerusalem and did not give Herod the information that he sought. And it's here that we pick up today. Now as we begin, I want to give you a big picture sense of what Matthew wants to accomplish narratively in this passage. Today's passage answers a question that a lot of early Christians would have been asked regularly about. If the prophets said that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem, why is it that the town Jesus is most commonly associated with is Nazareth? And in these verses, Matthew is going to explain how it is that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, like the prophet said, wound up being raised far to the north in Nazareth. Chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. God had just intervened to send the Magi away from Herod, and now God intervenes again. And for the second time, God speaks to Joseph through an angel appearing to him in a dream. Remember in chapter 1, Joseph had misgivings when he heard that his fiancée had come down pregnant. And he was thinking about divorcing her, and it was a vision of an angel that came to him in a dream and said, No, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7, that a virgin will conceive and give birth. And God commanded Joseph through an angel, Go forward with your wedding plans and adopt Jesus as your son. And now, again, in a dream, Joseph meets an angel. And the angel says, King Herod is coming for Jesus. And he says to Joseph, Take your family and go to Egypt and wait there until I tell you otherwise. Verse 14, And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Chapter 1, when Joseph received this vision from an angel, he responded to the very difficult commands. Those would have been difficult commands. 
ignore Mary's pregnancy, marry her anyway, commit to adopting a son that you've not fathered. Those would have been difficult commands, but Joseph responded to them with unflinching obedience. And now Joseph again responds to God's word with unflinching obedience. He's asleep, he has this dream, he wakes up, he gets Mary and little Jesus and they hit the road. We're told that they left by night. This speaks of Joseph's immediate response of obedience. He doesn't wait around to get independent confirmation. You know, I heard Herod's spies were in town and now it's time to go. No, he leaves immediately because he knows that God has spoken and he believes and he responds in faith at once. And by doing so, his family gets a head start on their pursuers. Moreover, Joseph's family gets the advantage of leaving under the cover of darkness. It's harder to find somebody at night, especially back then when there weren't traffic lights and stuff, right? And so Joseph, Jesus, and Mary head to Egypt. This would have been about a week's journey. And when they got to Egypt, they would have had to find a new place to live. This would have all been very expensive. And so some commentators suggest that Joseph sold the Magi's rich gifts to support this trip. The Bible doesn't say that, but it's certainly possible. And Mary, Jesus, and Joseph flee to Egypt. Now, what is the application of this text? Well, let's start with what the application isn't. In recent years, this passage has been abused in political conversations in this country. I've seen this text cited for the proposition that American Christians should stop opposing illegal immigration. The politicians and pastors who make this argument claim that when Joseph took his family into Egypt, they made an illegal border crossing and that Jesus was therefore an illegal immigrant. There are a lot of problems with this line of reasoning. But the first one is that it's totally historically incorrect. There was nothing illegal about this border crossing. During this period, Judea and Egypt were both provinces in the Roman Empire. And history tells us that Rome did not restrict people from traveling between its provinces freely. So this passage has absolutely nothing to do with illegal border crossings. Beyond that, I would say that it is a slander and blasphemy to say that Jesus engaged in or was associated with the perpetration of any lawless or sinful conduct at any point in his life. So if that's not what this passage is about, then what should we take from it? Well, we see God commands Joseph to flee a situation of danger. That might surprise us because we typically associate fleeing with fear. And we know that Christians are to be governed not by fear, but we're to live by faith. And so we might be surprised that God's instruction is for him to flee. Especially in our own time, we may be surprised by this instruction to flee danger. Because many Christians today seem to think that living by faith means we must act indifferently to the prospect of danger. But I would submit to you that that approach is not faith at all. That's fatalism. It's resignation. Whatever will be, will be, like Doris Day once sang. No, friends, faith recognizes the reality of danger, and yet it trusts that God will be with us in danger, and he will be with us through the danger. Now, sometimes in the Bible, we see that faith leads someone to take a hard stand, that they have to stay in place and endure hardship or suffering. And sometimes this even requires them to die. Most obviously, we can think of the Lord Jesus, who asked the Father, Father, if it's your will, take the cup of suffering from me. But in that prayer, he also said, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus recognized that the danger was real. And when it was clear that it was God's will that he endure it, he did. He stood firm. He did not utter a word in his own defense when he was falsely charged. But 
1 Peter 2 says, He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Hebrews 12 says, He endured the cross, despising the shame. He is the supreme example of faithful endurance until the end. Think of Daniel's friends, who said, We're not going to bow down to your idol, O king, even if you throw us in a fiery furnace. Think of Daniel, who prayed when prayer was illegal, knowing he may be cast into the lion's den. Think of the apostles who knew they would be beaten for preaching in the name of Jesus, but they did it anyway. Think of Stephen who preached to a murderous mob. Think of the millions of martyrs since who died because they could not deny Christ. There is certainly a call within Christianity to endure danger, even to the point of death. Remembering Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. And yet... The Bible also tells us that sometimes the right response to danger is the response of prudent escape. We see that in our passage today. Or when David fled the murderous wrath of Saul. Or when Paul, after fearlessly preaching in Damascus, learned that people wanted to murder him. And Acts 9 says his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Indeed, later in this book, Jesus says in Matthew 24, When you see the abomination of desolation, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The Bible tells us that sometimes flight is the proper response to danger. In fact, twice the Proverbs say, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So, how should we respond to the threat of danger? Well, the Bible indicates sometimes we should stand and face it and sometimes we should flee. And in fact, Jesus in chapter 10 of this book says the very same thing across two connected sentences. He says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Say, okay, Jesus, how do I know when it's time to endure or when it's time to flee? Well, the Bible doesn't give us a hard and fast rule. Case-by-case case analysis is required, but I do think there are some principles that we can learn to apply. First of which is this, don't put God to the test. Faith is not foolhardiness. I've known people who put themselves in ridiculously provocative and unnecessarily dangerous situations, insisting that God will protect me. And then they were astonished when it didn't turn out well. Friends, we are not called to find the most extravagant, dangerous, attention-getting ways to demonstrate our faith. No, regular old Great Commission witness will do just fine. And if we do that, make no mistake, opposition and danger will find us. But we don't have to go seeking danger. It will find us if we're about the Lord's work. We don't need to go provoke a, a situation of folly and then presume upon God's mercy, expecting Him to deliver us from a mess that we've made. Friends, do not put God to the test. Second, ordinarily you should act to preserve your own life, especially if there are other people who depend on you. Yes, Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But he said that in the same sermon in which he said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. See, friends, Jesus calls us to self-denial, not self-destruction. Seeking out suffering or martyrdom is sinful. God has given us life, which is inherently valuable, and we should ordinarily act to protect our lives and the lives of others. This is a given biblically. And remember Ephesians 5, in the middle of the passage about Christ and the church, Paul says, no one ever hated his own flesh. 
He just throws it out there because it doesn't require more explanation. It's obvious that we're to, to, to avoid self-destruction, especially if we have families. God has called us to fulfill our obligations to our families. 1 Timothy 5 says, If anyone does not provide for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If we have dependents who need us, throwing our lives away sins against those dependents and sinfully burdens the church and society. So friends, ordinarily, if we have a chance to avoid mortal danger, we should take it. J.C. Ryle wisely said, Flight from danger may sometimes be the positive duty of a Christian. The servant of Christ is not required to run into danger unless it comes in the line of duty. He is not to be ashamed to use reasonable means to provide for his personal safety when no good is to be done by dying at his post. The true martyrs are not always those who court death and are in a hurry to be beheaded or burned. And I think that's exactly right. Self-preservation is sometimes our duty more than seeking a heroic, glorious death. And yet, there are higher considerations than self-preservation. And that's our third principle. Never ever deny Christ. Escaping danger is a good option, but sometimes Christians get cornered. Sometimes persecutors allow us to escape only if we deny Christ or sin against him. And if, God forbid, we ever find ourselves in such a situation, then we must be faithful to Christ until the very end. Matthew 10, Jesus says, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Escape may be taken only when it is an act of obedience and loyalty to Christ, and never when it is an act of denial or disobedience to Christ. Finally, I think we must examine the motives that stand behind our desire to stay or flee. The Christian is never to be governed by fear and is always to live by faith. We often associate fleeing with fear, and certainly sometimes people do flee because of a disobedient or a faithless prudence. I will run from hardship because I don't believe God will be with me in this danger. That's evil. Make no mistake, that is evil. But sometimes fleeing is the path of faith. It was for Joseph here in Matthew 2. He fled to a distant country for an unknown period of time because he believed God's word and he wanted to protect his family. He cast himself and his family entirely on the Lord. That's righteous. Sometimes standing firm in the face of danger is likewise righteous. We've talked about some famous examples of that already. But sometimes standing firm in the face of danger is folly and sin. Let me remind you of Harry Truman. Not President Harry Truman, but the old man who lived on Mount St. Helens in Washington. When geologists came to him and said, you're living on top of a, a volcano which is about to erupt, he said, I don't believe it. I'm not going to move. He wouldn't leave. He would stay and face the danger. And when the eruption happened, he was killed needlessly because his pride wouldn't allow him to acknowledge the reality of danger. It's not virtue. It's folly. And so we need to examine our motives. We need to seek the path of faith. The path that takes God at his word, which obeys the duties and responsibilities God has put upon us, which testifies well of Christ and which values the life he has given us. And if you say, I don't know what that path is when I encounter danger, then friends, pray for God's wisdom. For James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. 
When confronted by danger, ask God for guidance with faith, and he promises he will give it to you. And when he does, then follow it like Joseph did. For God told Joseph that in the face of this danger, he must flee, and he did. This leads to our second point, which is that God's enemies often seek to thwart God's plans by killing God's people. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Herod sent the Magi to Bethlehem. He was sure he had deceived them. He was sure he would soon hear back from them where the Christ child was. But time went by and Herod heard nothing. And it wouldn't have taken Herod very long to realize the Magi weren't going to come back to him. After all, Bethlehem was just a two-hour walk from Jerusalem. And Herod concluded that the Magi had double-crossed him and he fell into a furious rage. In actuality, the real situation here is Herod had forgotten to account for the possibility that God would intervene in this situation and deliver his Messiah from Herod's murderous plot. But Herod was not going to let the Magi's escape deter him from his wicked intention. See, over the final years of Herod's rule, he had secured his throne by committing murder after murder. The family which had ruled Judea before Herod's family were called the Hasmoneans. And during his reign, Herod murdered every last living Hasmonean, including his own brother-in-law, his mother-in-law, and his favorite wife, because they had all been Hasmoneans. He also ordered the deaths of his three eldest sons because he thought they were scheming against him. He ordered the deaths of all of his political rivals and their families. Herod dealt with challenges through murder, and here he means to kill the Christ. And if he can't kill him in a targeted assassination, Herod decided, well then, I'll just kill all the kids in the region at the right age, and I'll make sure I get him that way. Remember, Herod had talked to the Magi and said, when did you first see the sign of the Christ's birth? And from that, he concludes that if I kill all the kids under two, I'll get him. And that's what he orders. Now, much of what has been written about this incident over the years suggests that thousands of kids were killed in this slaughter. But that is very unlikely. In actuality, Bethlehem was a very small town. Even if you take the region around Bethlehem into account, we're probably talking about 20 to 30 victims. But this is still a wicked, wicked, wicked act of mass murder. It would have been a wicked act if Herod was killing mature, sinful political rivals. But he's killing little children whom God loves. Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. But Herod commits this one last despicable act in a foolish attempt to clutch power and thwart God's Messiah. Now, murder is heinous. And murdering children and toddlers and infants and the unborn is heinous. But I want you to see something else is going on here, which is the repetition of a pattern across history, a pattern established in the garden. When God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this prophecy ultimately points to Christ's eventual victory over Satan. But it anticipates something else, too. It anticipates two lineages. One lineage, which consists of the elect, the people of God, which is ultimately represented by Christ. And another lineage, which follows the serpent in rebellion against God, 
the unregenerate, which ultimately culminates in Antichrist. And these two lineages are endlessly in conflict. And we see this throughout the book of Genesis. Abel is accepted by God. Cain is rejected. Isaac is chosen by God. Ishmael is not. Jacob is loved by God. Esau is hated. And so forth, down through the ages. And the enemies of God often follow the example of Cain, and they kill the chosen of God. We see it in Exodus 1, when Pharaoh ordered the mass murder of Israelite children, male Israelite children, hoping to, to destroy Israel. We see it in 2 Kings 11, when Athaliah, the wicked daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, usurped the throne of Judah and ordered the deaths of the entire Davidic dynasty. Only one baby boy escaped her. We see it in the book of Esther, when Haman plotted the extermination of the Jews. We see it in our own time and throughout the whole church age as nation after nation from ancient Rome down through modern Islamic and communist nations persecute the church of God. We see it in the Holocaust when Hitler tried to kill the Jews. The enemies of God endlessly try to thwart God's good purposes and promises by committing acts of mass murder. Pharaoh and Haman and Athaliah sought to commit murders which, if they had fully succeeded, would have prevented the Messiah from being born. On this side of the cross, we see attempts to destroy the church and end the Great Commission, or to destroy Israel and thwart God's promise in Romans 11 that in the end, at the return of Christ, Israel will turn and believe in Him. Over and over throughout history, this murderous pattern recurs. And why? Because there is one intelligence which stands behind all of the opposition to God. Satan is God's ancient enemy and endlessly seeks to thwart his plans. And Satan again and again uses those whom he controls, the unregenerate, to kill the people of God, hoping to thwart the promises of God. And that's what we see here. Herod, the usurper, ethnically an Edomite, a descendant of Esau whom had been, who, who had been rejected by God, and whose descendants had been Israel's constant enemy through the Old Testament, here tries to kill Jesus, the long-promised king of Israel, the true seed of the woman who would crush Satan's head by committing a mass murder, hoping to kill Jesus. But it didn't work because of our third point, which is that God thwarts the wicked schemes of his enemies and turns their evil around to serve his good purposes. Look at verse 19. But when Herod died... Herod was a wicked and a powerful man. But eventually, he went the way of all flesh. God's justice caught up with Herod, and Herod did not keep his throne despite his schemes and his murders. He died, and he was condemned by God. Verse 19, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. For the third time now, an angel appears to Joseph. And he tells Joseph to take his family back to Israel. And he says it's safe to do so because Herod has died. And once again, Joseph immediately responds in obedience to God's word. Verse 21, And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But now Joseph learns something that startles him. Verse 22, But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Now, I told you Herod murdered his three oldest sons, but he had some other kids. And when he died, Herod's will split his kingdom into three parts. The northeast went to his son Philip. The north, known as Galilee, went to his son Antipas. 
and the south, Judea, went to Archelaus. And Joseph seems surprised by this news that Archelaus reigns in Judea. Perhaps when the angel told him, those who sought the child's life are dead, Joseph understood that to mean that all the Herods were dead. Or perhaps Joseph expected a different outcome when Herod died. Maybe he thought Rome would get rid of the Herods and put their own governor in charge. Or that a different son of Herod's would take over. We don't know what Joseph thought. But we do know he thought this. It's bad news that Archelaus reigns in Judea. And he's right for thinking that way. Archelaus was just like his father. He was a mass murderer. His first act in office was he murdered 3,000 worshipers at a Passover feast. And just 10 years into his rule, Rome, which had happily tolerated bloodthirsty Herod, decided that Archelaus was just too cruel and wicked to rule in Judea. You know this guy's bad news when Rome says he's too evil. And Joseph hears this guy is now in charge in Judea, which is where Bethlehem was. And Joseph is now saying, I'm afraid to return to Bethlehem, which is where his family had been living since Jesus' birth before they went to Egypt. Now, notice what happens next, verse 22. And being warned in a dream, Joseph withdrew to the district of Galilee. For the fourth time now, God speaks to Joseph in a dream. Now, notice what God does not say to Joseph. He doesn't say, I rebuke you for being afraid of Archelaus. Go back to the danger. No. God confirms to Joseph, your analysis of this situation is correct. And God directs Joseph to return to Nazareth, which was a small town in the north in Galilee. Luke's gospel tells us that Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary had originally lived. Now, it's not hard to see why they would have moved out of Nazareth after getting married. Nazareth was a tiny town. Maybe 500 people lived there. And a small town environment like that would be a very hard place to raise a family, especially with the rumors that were going around about Mary's pregnancy and the true paternity about Jesus. We can see why Joseph and Mary would have chosen to stay in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. But now God sends them back home, back to Nazareth. Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. We'll talk about this quotation in a minute. But what I want you to see here is this. In this passage, there is a satanic mass murder designed to thwart the plan of God, to nullify the promise of God, and slay the Messiah. With horrific collateral damage, dozens of babies are killed. The enemy certainly did evil. Evil which God has avenged and will avenge throughout eternity. But the evil that Satan and Herod intended did not create the outcome they expected. First of all, they failed to thwart God's plan. Jesus lived. Not only did Jesus live, but because of these events, he wound up living in Nazareth, which Matthew tells us was a prophetic fulfillment. So far from thwarting God's plan, these events actually wound up bringing about the fulfillment of God's plan. See, friends, God is providentially working in all things. Genesis 50, 20 says, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And what Satan and his pawns mean when they attack and destroy the people of God, God takes their evil actions and uses them as the means of advancing his plan, of fulfilling prophecy in this case, or of continuing the Messiah's life and placing Jesus right where he was supposed to be. And friends, what we need to learn from this is very simple. God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's promises and purposes will come to pass. The enemy has his schemes, and at times he will enjoy tactical victories. 
but in the end, these tactical victories will only pave the path to his utter defeat because God only lets Satan win small victories when those victories somehow wind up furthering God's overarching good purpose. And friends, we can have confidence that God is on the throne, that he is in control, and that he is guiding history towards the victory that he has promised to give his son and all those who love him. So that's what we see in the narrative. We've seen how Bethlehem-born Jesus winds up becoming Jesus of Nazareth. And we've learned that a right response to imminent danger is obedient prudence, and that God's enemies often seek to thwart God's plans by destroying God's people, but God thwarts the wicked schemes of his enemies and turns their evil around to serve his good purposes. Now what I want to do in our remaining time is go back through this passage one more time, and now I want to focus on the three citations that Matthew makes to the Old Testament. And here we're going to see a deeper layer to this passage, which points to the unity of the scriptures and which is going to teach us about who Jesus really is. I told you narratively that what Matthew's doing in these verses is he is explaining how Jesus wound up in Nazareth. But theologically what Matthew is doing here is he is continuing his introduction to Jesus. You know, thus far in the book, Jesus has not spoken one word. He's still very young. Jesus has been acted upon by various people. He has been born, he has been worshipped, he has been relocated, he has been pursued. But Jesus has not yet begun to act for himself. That will change in the next chapter. But before Matthew tells us about Jesus' actions, he wants us to understand who Jesus is. And that's what the opening chapters of this book have been all about. That's why it started with Jesus' genealogy, showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and to David and to exiled Israel. And then we saw Jesus' birth, and we saw that not only was Jesus conceived and born to a virgin, but that he is God with us, that he has come to save his people from their sins. We saw last time that he was born in Bethlehem, that he is the king prophesied by Micah, whose origins stretch back to eternity. See, Matthew's teaching us about who Jesus is here at the beginning. And the three Old Testament references in this chapter continue this introduction to Jesus. So let's look at these references now and see what they teach us. Start with the first reference, which we find in verse 15, which says this, Jesus' flight into Egypt, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now initially this reference seems unremarkable. Jesus went to Egypt. We know that Jesus is God's son. Jesus came out of Egypt. A prophet said God's son would come out of Egypt. What's the big deal? Well, we discover what the big deal is if we bother to look up this quotation in the Old Testament. The reference is to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Let me read you this quotation in its original context. Hosea 11, 1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. That's surprising. In Matthew, who is the son whom God calls out of Egypt? It's Jesus, right? In Hosea, who is the son whom God calls out of Egypt? It's Israel. Are we reading that correctly? Well, let's keep reading in Hosea and find out. Hosea 11.2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. That's not about Jesus. That's about Israel. God is saying, Israel was like my little child. I raised him. I taught them how to walk. Like me and Sarah with little Joshua now holding him by the arms. But God says when Israel could walk, they went after idols. 
See, in Hosea, the son whom God calls out of Egypt is Israel. It's a reference to the Exodus. So then why does Matthew take this statement about Israel's past and say that it's a messianic prophecy that points forward to Jesus? This is hugely controversial today. And it's given rise to all sorts of articles like one I saw for this sermon, which was entitled, Matthew Twists the Scriptures. And this is a common charge today, that Matthew just pulled the statement out of its Old Testament context and dishonestly applied it to Jesus. But is that true? It's not true at all. Matthew here is working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit shows Matthew and what Matthew tells us is that there are some really important parallels between the history of ancient Israel and the life of Jesus. Consider for a moment the beginning of Israel. The patriarch Jacob has 12 sons who will father the 12 tribes of Israel. We'll see in Matthew chapters 4 and 10 that Jesus calls 12 disciples who together give a representative cross-section of the diversity of ancient Israelite society. Then what happened? Well, the 12 tribes wound up in Egypt until the Exodus, until God called them out of Egypt. And similarly, Jesus, God's eternal son, went down to Egypt and was called out of Egypt. And what happened? Well, Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, what Paul called a baptism of sorts, and they wound up wandering in the wilderness. Just as in chapter 3 of this book, Jesus will go through the waters of baptism and immediately go into the wilderness. Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness and failed. Jesus will be tested for 40 days in the wilderness and succeed. Israel goes to Mount Sinai to receive the law from Moses. In chapter 5 of this book, we will see Israelites again at another mountain, receiving the true interpretation of the law from Jesus. And those are just the parallels in the first five chapters. What do we see here? Jesus' life parallels the experiences of ancient Israel. Or turn it around. The experiences of ancient Israel prefigure and predict the life of Jesus. This is called typology. Where we find something in the Old Testament, which is a model that anticipates and predicts a greater truth revealed in the New Testament. And what Matthew is telling us is the nation of Israel and its history is a type. It is a prophetic model which anticipates Jesus. This is why we cannot unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, in its totality, points to Jesus. What it tells us about Israel points to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the typology of Israel. Jesus is the new, the true, and the ultimate Israel. In the Old Testament, people came to God by association with Israel. But from His birth onwards, people now come to God through association with Jesus. In the Old Testament, promises were made to and about Israel. But Galatians 3.16 now tells us those promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus is establishing a new people, a new nation made up of people from every nation, a kingdom of priests that will reign forever. Jesus is the beginning of the new people of God. And that's the idea. So Matthew isn't twisting the scriptures. The professors who think he was think so because they are unregenerate, and the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. No, Matthew, under divine inspiration, recognizes the central role that Jesus occupies in fulfilling the plan of God to form a new people who will inhabit a new creation which is entirely brought about by Jesus. So Jesus is the true Israel. And that's what the first reference tells us. We find the second reference in verses 17 and 18. Immediately after Herod has massacred the infants of Bethlehem, we read, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, 
weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, at first, this reference also seems unremarkable. We've just read about the massacre of children. We now read that the matriarch Rachel, one of the wives of Jacob, was weeping because her children are no more. And, of course, this is a metaphor. Because Rachel was long dead when Herod perpetrated his murder, and she was long dead when Jeremiah wrote these words. But at first, this reference seems to make perfect sense. There is tremendous sorrow in Israel because of the death of these children. So what is the big deal about this reference? Well, again, we will discover what the big deal is if we look up this quotation in the Old Testament. The reference is to Jeremiah 31.15. And it's, in its original context, Jeremiah 31.15 is not about the death of Israelites, Rather, it is about their exile. Let me read you a bit of context to prove this. Jeremiah 31.3. God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Together, a great company shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. As in Hosea, we see God again calling Israel his son. And God here promises to restore Israel from exile. And the metaphorical weeping of Rachel in Jeremiah 31.15 is a response to the sorrow of exile. But there's more. In the entirety of Jeremiah chapter 31, Verse 15 is the only sorrowful verse. The rest of the chapter is a glorious promise of restoration. Indeed, listen to what Jeremiah says immediately after verse 15. Immediately after, he says, Rachel is weeping for her exiled children. Jeremiah 31, 16. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Jeremiah says, Rachel, stop weeping because God is going to set all things right for Israel. Okay, so what do we see in Matthew 2? Why does Matthew quote this verse after describing Herod's mass murder? Not simply because another sorrowful event has occurred in Israel's history, but because in the middle of this horror perpetrated by Herod, there's hope. In the midst of the oppression and bondage of Israel, God is again at work and he will set things aright. And how? Because Jesus, God's true and eternal son, has survived this massacre. Jesus will bring in the kingdom. Jesus will wipe away Israel's sorrows. And Jesus is the one who will bring to pass what is described at the end of Jeremiah 31, which is the new covenant, the greatest possible relationship with God, where God says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That's Israel's great hope. That's our great hope. And how does it come to pass? Because of Jesus. Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus and his death which ultimately opened the door for our salvation, for salvation for believing Jews and Gentiles alike. It's Jesus' death which guarantees a future hope and an end to all sorrow. And so Jesus is Israel's hope in the middle of sorrow and tragedy. And he's our hope in the middle of sorrow and tragedy too. And that's what the second reference tells us. 
We find the third reference in verse 23. In a statement which is made immediately after we're told that Joseph has moved his family to Nazareth. Verse 23, we're told this happened so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Now again at first this reference seems unremarkable. We've just read that Jesus moved to Nazareth. We're now told this fulfills a prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. What's the big deal? Well, again, we will discover what the big deal is if we try to look up this quotation in the Old Testament. Because what we'll find this time is that never once in the Old Testament do we find the phrase, he will be called a Nazarene. Not once. So what is Matthew talking about? Well, for starters, Matthew's choice of words here signals that this quotation is unlike every other quotation of the Old Testament he's given us so far. Every other time Matthew makes a connection between Jesus and the Old Testament, he uses a different set of terms than he uses here. He uses a different Greek word when he, he talks about something being spoken. And this time he says the quotation comes from the prophets, plural, whereas usually Matthew speaks of the fulfillment of a word given by the prophet, singular. The impression you get here is Matthew's telling us this quotation's a little different. This isn't a quotation of a specific prophetic text. Rather, he is relating to us a general impression that comes not from one biblical passage, but from all that all the prophets say about the Messiah. But how does he get the idea that all of the prophets say that the Messiah will be called a Nazarene, a person from Nazareth? Well, one of the ways people have tried to understand this is they have noticed that the key consonants in the Greek word Nazarene, which in English are the letters N, Z, and R, seem to pop up together in important Hebrew prophecies that speak of the Messiah. So Isaiah 11.1 prophesies about the Messiah, that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is a promise that the Messiah will restore the house of David to prominence when the house of David seemed to be dead. And the Hebrew word translated branch in this verse is netzer, which sort of sounds like Nazarene. Or in Isaiah 42, we read, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is a messianic prophecy. And in verse 6 of this prophecy, we read the Lord says to the Messiah, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out from the prison those who sit in darkness. And in the middle of this promise, when God says he will keep the Messiah, he, the Hebrew verb here is Nazar, which again sounds like Nazarene. And so that word play, this similarity of sounds, may be the basis for the reference. But there's another possibility. In first century Judaism, the elite were from Jerusalem or at least they were from Judea. They certainly weren't from Galilee, and they absolutely weren't from little Nazareth. You might remember this. At the start of John's Gospel, Jesus is calling his disciples, and we read that Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. What is Nathanael's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathaniel was no elite from Jerusalem. He too was from Galilee. He was from another podunk town called Cana. But even he looked down on Nazareth. To be from Nazareth then would be like to be from the most rural place in Arkansas or West Virginia in our society today. It would mean that you were from the most backwards, backwoods, out of the way, uneducated, unimpressive hick town. 
And perhaps that's the idea. Because while the prophecies of the Old Testament tell us the Messiah will accomplish amazing deeds for God, prophets also tell us that the Messiah will be scorned and rejected. Zechariah 11 calls him the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders. Psalm 22 and 69 speak of a kingly figure suffering scorn and torture. Isaiah 49.7 calls the Messiah one deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. And Isaiah 53, which we started with today, says the Messiah is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. These are prophecies that we'll see at the end of this book come to pass when Jesus is rejected and crucified. And I think that's the idea Matthew's driving at most of all here in verse 23. The Messiah will be rejected, which is a theme we're going to see play out across this book. So we've looked at these three Old Testament references in this passage, and when we look at them in context, what we see is some amazing truth about who Jesus is. Jesus is God's true and ultimate Son. He is the true Israel. He is the place where man meets with God. He is the foundation of the new people of God. He is the beginning of the new creation. He is nothing less than the nation of Israel and its history's fulfillment. Friends, this is why we need the Old Testament. Jesus is Israel's hope in the beginning, in the midst of tragedy. And I want to make one point clear here. When I say Jesus is the beginning of the new creation, I'm not saying that Jesus was created. He's not. He's eternal. But Jesus is the first uh, person in a resurrection body, which every believer will wind up in a resurrection body. He is the prototype for what we all will be when we inhabit the new creation. More than that, Jesus is Israel's hope. In the midst of tragedy, he is the one who will inaugurate the new covenant. He is the Messiah who will be scorned and rejected, who will die and who will die for our sin and who will triumph in resurrection. And so indeed, this is a deceptively simple passage. It looks like it's a story about Jesus moving a few times. And yet it teaches us some practical truths about facing danger. It teaches us about the providence of God. It teaches us that God reverses the evils of the enemy and always furthers his own plan. And it teaches us that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and Jesus begins God's new purposes in this world. He is the bridge between the promises God made to Israel and the fulfillment we find in the church age. So this morning, friends, we must marvel at Jesus. We must worship Jesus because he is our hope. He is our deliverance, and He is our salvation. He has died to bring us to God. In Him alone is salvation. And He has risen to reign forevermore in fulfillment of the Scriptures. So as Ephesians 3 says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.